The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Crying over slipped vista and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik here to announce show number 169 with guest Rocky Lotka, recorded live Sunday, March 26, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who put the soft back in software, Carl Franklin! Hi, this is Carl Franklin, and welcome to .NET Rocks. Richard Campbell, my co-host out there in Vancouver, British Columbia, fellow regional director. It's regional director day here at .NET Rocks because <laughs> sitting right across from me is Rocky Latka. It's uh, Usually we have some witty banter before we start the show, but it's a little rude to be sitting right in front of somebody and not allow them to talk. So, hi, Rocky. Hey, how's it going? Uh, doing fine. We were just talking before the, the show about your favorite word, defenestration. It's, uh, you know, one of my, it's one big, of it's cool. It's, well, actually, it is my favorite word, I gotta it is. say. All right. <laughs> and what is the definition of defenestration? Well, I, it's uh, basically to throw someone out a window. <laughs> uh, has this been an issue for you recently? Um, I, I can't tell you how many windows I've been thrown out of. It oh, you've just... been thrown out of them. I see. <laughs> Defenestration.org is a real website. The act of throwing someone or something out a window. Very funny. And uh, more more with Rocky in just a minute. But first, Richard, we have some uh, email this week. Actually, not this week. We have some email from last week that we didn't read last week. This one says, thank you for the .NET Rocks TV shows. Uh, Venkat, I've been listening. Venkat Subramaniam was the guest. Uh, he's talking about Venkat. I've been listening to the .NET Rocks TV shows you did on generics and multithreading. I want to thank you personally for your insight. You have a great way of presenting and explaining both simple and complex concepts that make your point very clear. I feel they are some of the best learning videos I have seen. I also love your analogies. I'm a longtime Java developer that has recently moved on to a C-sharp.net project, so your talks have been very helpful. By the way, I will also be purchasing your book. I'm already looking forward to reading it. Please continue doing more shows on .NET Rocks. Thanks, Mike. Mike Hebert. And, uh, yeah, you know, Venkat Subramaniam is this, uh, he, he's, we haven't been talking much about him, but uh, fairly new to my scope of, you know, the .NET sort of gurus. But he's a, a professor at the University of Houston and also happens to have written some great books. And he's a great teacher. It's obvious if you watch any of his um, shows that we've done on DNR TV. Very insightful stuff, too, and, and not big, big topics, just a whole bunch of little fine details. You can really get the sense that he's been through .NET with a fine-tooth comb. Yeah. you. Uh, his book, .NET Gotchas, was really, really a eye-opener for me, and it was a great idea, too, to write a book that was you know problem-solving-based. You know, here's a problem, here's how you solve it, rather than try to 
you know, come at it from a sort of a big picture kind of, uh, you know, top down way. Funny, I've got an email as well. Uh, and again, a kudos to DNR TV. Mm. This one from Philip Nisnik out of London saying, hey, guys, just wanted to say that DNR TV is a great addition to the Franklin's.net output. Topics covered are right on the mark, and I look forward to your future episodes. Maybe unit testing development practices in the real world app would be a nice topic that I'm sure is on your list. Why, yeah, in fact, I, it is. I see Rocky smiling. We uh, <laughs> we have just completed two DNR TV shows with uh, Jean-Paul Boudou from ThoughtWorks, the guys who do CruiseControl.net, and, uh, and that was all on TDD. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, we were just talking with Tim Huckabee last week, and uh, it made me want to, when he was talking about all the, the stuff that he's doing and the reason why .NET is being adopted so well, uh, you know, is because it's easy, it's quick to build an application. It's very fast, and companies are looking at that as a huge expense savings. Well, and so I'd, then I'd love the, to get a DNR TV of that great Avalon app he was talking about. Well, the reason I brought it up was I almost brought up, so Tim... What do you think of test-driven development, you know, because <laughs> now let's take a completely, you know, I don't know. You take something that is that is renowned for being quick and fast and then add this other layer of complexity to it to slow it down. And I see Rocky nodding his head. This would be a good time to introduce the guest. Rocky Lotka is the principal technology evangelist for Magenic Technologies, a company focused on delivering business value through applied technology and one of the nation's premier Microsoft Gold certified partners. Rockford is the author of several books, including the Expert VB 2005 and C Sharp 2005 Business Objects books. He is a Microsoft Regional Director, MVP, and Ineta speaker. He contributes to several major magazines and regularly presents at major conferences around the world, including Microsoft PDC, TechEd, VS Live, and VS Connections. Rocky has worked on many projects in various roles, including software architecture, design and development, network administration, and project management. Over his career, he has designed and helped to create systems for biomedical manufacturing, agriculture, point of sale, credit card fraud tracking, general retail, construction, and healthcare. Also, a frequent guest on .NET Rocks, and glad to have you right here in the studio this week, Rocky. Yeah, it's glad to be back. Very, very cool. So I, I, hear, I see you nodding your head there. I guess you have some p- opinions about test-driven development? Well, I got to say that I'm, I'm not the uh, strongest supporter of the concept. Yeah. And uh, is it just because of the time involved that it takes is counterproductive, you think? Or what's your major critique? Well, my major critique really is that it, I think, comes out of a different world from most of us that have spent many years working in the Microsoft space. Yeah. Um, and, and I think a world where the tools that we're used to, that we just take for granted, uh, haven't existed. Yeah. So test-driven development comes from the premise that you don't have IntelliSense and, yeah. and all of these other cool things. Mm most of which we lose yeah. if we sit down and start writing tests before we start writing code. Hmm. Good point. So arguably, of course, it's got this tremendous uh, benefit in terms of making you think through your code better and right. you know, a, a lot of other things. But in the Microsoft space, you lose so much hmm. by going down that road that I think until we can come up with some scenario where um, Visual Studio can give you uh, inferred IntelliSense based on your tests as you write them, or I, I'm making this up. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Everything that I do tends to focus around the the belief that, that I want my Visual Studio experience, and right. I want it to really do as much for me as it possibly can. What about the uh, the benefit that, you know, the, the main benefit, which we had talked about a couple of times, which was as projects get more and more complex, having those test cases there to run against at build time, you know, with continuous integration and stuff, goes a lot, f- a lot farther to uh, fix problems based on you know small incremental changes. So basically, when it comes down to ship day, you have a lot less bugs. I mean, this has been demonstrated with test-driven development. Well, I think it's really a subtle ordering of events. If, if you say, you know, sit down and say, well, what I'm going to do is write all of my tests first. Right. Basically, I'm going to write a bunch of code to test things that don't exist. Well, typically, you write right. a test before a method, and then a test the method, and there's sort of a cycle that you get into. Well, 
th- this is true, but again, on a larger system, I'm not convinced that that's yeah. overly realistic. Things yeah. start, okay. to, you know, your I mean, tests. The, the impairment you're getting here is that if I write the test first, I don't get to use the tools the way I want to. Mm. But if I write the test second, then I tend to write the test to match the code I just generated. And so I'm probably not giving it a really good test. But developers are going to do that anyway. I mean, let's face it. Developers are right. not testers. Right, right. We have the wrong mindset. Mm. And some years ago, I was working for a company who hired me specifically to write tests. Hmm. and nothing else oh that was the hardest thing i think i've ever done wow because i don't i don't think that way yeah right. i look at the spec and i test to make sure that my code does the spec or in this case that their code did the spec well that's not testing yeah right i mean that it is at one level but it's not the kind of testing that you hire test people to do well you think you brought up a great point before which is it forces you to think through your code more which is an option with higher level slick interfaces you know you don't have to go you don't have to spend so much time thinking about it because you don't have so much preparation to do right well that i think is true and and i want to be clear i'm not saying don't test or right you know i absolutely think you should write unit tests i just think generally speaking that you should at at the very least mock up your object right and maybe write even some of your code first yeah and then you know as a developer, I've always written little test harnesses, yeah. either you know a console app or a Win app or a right. web, whatever. Right? Everybody does this, right? Sure. They're, sure. they're little two, five, ten lines of code, whatever, to yep. just do the quick test. Right. Right. Well, you know, the insta- you, yeah, I'm almost seeing that the antithesis of test-driven development is this fast refactor cycle that we can we get into writing code where i write a bit of code i look how it behaves i write a bit more code then i refactor it to uh, consolidate some functionality and do it again something that really fights against test-driven development yeah well and and yet interestingly it all comes at least in theory out of the agile but both ideas really come out of the same space right so you wouldn't think they'd fight but but they do yeah. But they do, because if I've gone to the effort of developing that test so that I have a standardized behavior, I'm not willing to refactor it and break my tests. Mm. Mm. All good things to think about here on .NET Rocks. So, you know, we're about exploring the issues. We don't, we don't, we don't like to fall hardcore on one side or the other. It's a good thing you're here. So, Rocky, you have written some new books, as we've seen from your website. And you're You've all busy. <laughs> I have, have been busy. It is true. CSLA.net 2.0. Remind us, for listeners who just fell off a turnip truck, what CSLA.net is. Well, CSLA.net is the, uh, well, 2.0 is the most recent version of actually a long string of of work that I've been doing to uh, build framework that allows you to do object-oriented design and programming Mm -hmm. uh, in a distributed environment. Yeah, and you've been working on this since VB6 when you wrote the big tome. Uh, VB5, actually. Oh, is it VB5? <laughs> yeah, believe it Jeez. or not. Ten years almost. Wow. Right? Wow. So this is, uh, yeah, although it says 2.0 because this is the second <laughs> .NET version. Right, right. You know, the, the ideas have been percolating for basically a decade, so it's And a quick old. recap, this is uh, some, some plumbing objects, basically, in a, in a whole framework that you want to use as base objects for business objects and the way to implement those business objects. And in fact, much more than that, it's, it's all, it all comes with a book, the business object book in VB or C sharp. And, uh, half the book describes how the objects work. And then half the book describes using the objects, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And what are some of the features just to recap of, of these, uh, of these objects? Well, it's important I think to re- to realize a lot of people look at CSLA and and uh, think it's an ORM object relational mapping, right? You know, like N Hibernate or you know a variety of different tools out there, and sure. it's not, not at all. the The focus really in in my mind is to enable uh, you to create business objects that focus on your business code, your business logic, yeah, and let the framework handle the plumbing. So the the plumbing that I focus on is things like automating data binding support yeah, and providing uh, N-level undo so that you can easily implement a cancel button. Very cool. And uh, helping to automate validation logic and authorization logic and actually embed those right into your objects. 
And I would strongly encourage, if this is the first time you've heard of this, uh, the listener, to go back and listen to uh, the previous shows that we've done with Rocky on CSLA.net. So now that we've sort of established what, what CSLA is all about, what is uh, what does 2 give us above and beyond just the fact that it works with .NET 2.0? Well, 2.0 uh, probably has three major things that it provides. One, uh, the validation support uh, has been greatly revamped and I think is a lot better than what I had in the previous version, um, which is also the biggest breaking change for anybody moving forward. Okay. Um, uh, but on the upside... We'll, we'll get into that in detail uh, in just a minute. On, sure. on the upside, it, it, you know, it's a lot more powerful and flexible. Okay. Um, then I added authorization support. That's uh-huh. a, a brand new uh, concept to the framework. Wow. One that a lot of people wanted. And okay. then the, th- the third big area of change uh, is actually in the what I call the data portal, uh, which is what enables CSLA to do uh, client server. Uh, really, it's a concept called mobile objects. Hmm. And uh, that was majorly changed as I went into 2.0, uh, primarily in preparation uh, eventually for Indigo or, or Windows Communication Foundation. Okay. So abstracting the communication layer out of the framework so you could swap it out. Yes, exactly. Excellent. Uh, let's start with the validation. So what was weird about validation before and how did you uh, fix it, quote unquote? <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see if I fixed it or not, depending on what people, you know. <laughs> the books are just coming out now. So how did you change uh, it? Let's say that. Um, well, in the previous version, uh, what I did was kind of took a, a page from uh, NUnit, actually, and had a, an assert method that you would call uh, asserting a given rule that, that might or might not be true. Okay. And then you would put that in your property set. So as you change a property, you would check the value and assert that it was, say, greater than five or or that the length of the string was less than 50 or whatever. Okay. Sure. And that seemed really like a nice idea until you realize that you also need to check validation logic when you create a new object. And you also need sometimes to check it when you load data from the database because you might not trust the data. Uh And, yeah, two or three other possibilities. And you don't necessarily call your property sets to do those. Sure. And so then how do you get that same rule into multiple places? Okay. And you end up with duplicate code in your object. Well, Mm. that's not good. Right. And so a variety of solutions were tossed out, but ultimately – um, what I settled on was a, a scheme by which uh, a business rule, a validation rule, uh, is considered to be a method using .NET's delegate concept. Uh, so I defined a delegate signature for this rule method that returns a Boolean, true if your rule is fine and false mm-hmm. if it's broken, and then using uh, the standard that Microsoft set forward passing in the uh, sender, which is really the object containing the data to validate Ah. and then an argument parameter that says what property do you want to validate and then you uh if it's broken you can return to a human readable description i always loved that interface and and uh was a little disheartened to find out that it really only permeated through windows forms yeah 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 and then but it is it's an elegant approach yeah and so i carried it forward into this as well excellent You've got quite the community going on around CSLA. The uh, forums are, are very busy. Yes, they are. And and very, um, shall we say, vocal. They, they There are a number of very active people. Um, and really, I don't spend as much time there as I would like. And, and it's the community itself that keeps it going and keeps it as vibrant as it is. It always uh, pleased me that you chose to do this as a book. And not as a product. You know, if this was a product, this would cost a significantly more than the $50 or 70 80 that you pay for the book, I have to imagine. I am sure it would. <laughs> and the return on books, as you know, is not great. Not particularly, no. Yeah. But uh, that's, you know, thank you on behalf of the .NET community. That's very generous of you to do that. Why, what informed your decision about uh, about doing it as a book? Versus a product. Um, boy, to answer that, I got to go back oh, uh, actually quite a ways. I, I used to be an Amiga uh, 
not back. <laughs> but you got better. I, I well, <laughs> the amiga not went away. <laughs> no, I don't think I got better. It's just my toy went away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this was in the late '80s, I suppose. Yeah, um, I remember the bouncing ball demo. I remember, I remember standing up and applauding the bouncing ball demo. I remember Max Headroom and a game called Ports of Call, <laughs> which was my one of my favorite games. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful stuff. Excellent. Anyway, and and, and uh, the Amiga had this vibrant community around it. Yeah, you know, and and not not just like the you know the rabbit who everybody should use an Amiga, um, but People like like a guy named Matt Dillon that wrote an entire UUCP stack, uh, and wow. then just gave it away. And uh, Fred Fish, the that uh, which I assume is a pseudonym, uh, who collected all of this cool Amiga software and and provided it as a library of floppy disks. Because wow, yeah, that awesome predates the internet a little. Wow, and th- to me, those guys were always an inspiration, and I was kind of wanted to be like those guys and and your so, mentors really even though i never met any of them in person it's really amazing yeah. how these p- people have an effect on us um for me it was the crescent software guys that really were my uh provided me a model of you know providing to the technical community you know they they gave out source code with all their stuff which was assembler source code for basic tools and they also, they, they printed up pamphlets, like how assembly works, how electronics work, you know? And they, they were truly all about educating people. And they did it in a coy and kind of fun way. And that really stuck with me. And it had a huge impact. They don't even, you know, Ethan Weiner has no idea, I guess, the impact that he had on me. And I guess, I suppose that you and I and Richard are in some way helping to pass that torch on, we hope. Well, I hope so. Well, that's a great thing, man. So uh, let's. So the validation is one thing. The next thing you mentioned was authorization. So uh, this is new. This is new. Now, is this in lieu of or in addition to the kind of code access security that uh, we already have, or how? What's the relationship here? Really, it's an entirely uh, different approach. Okay. Um, and, and the reason is that working with different customers over the past two or three years. Um, one of the common themes, of course, is that people want to be able to do at least form level validation where they allow or don't allow a user into a form or a web page. Right. But then a lot of organizations want to allow or not allow different users to edit different fields. Field level authorization. Field level authorization. So that everybody can see the same page, but only some of them are allowed to edit it. Exactly. Mm. And, you know, uh, Basically, what people have been doing, of course, is implementing all of that in the UI. With roles and such? With regular? Uh, often with roles, yep. Security-based stuff? And then mm-hmm. you just control it in the UI. Lots of conditional testing. Lots of conditional testing. And when you when you step back and think about authorization... Sure, I know where you're who, going. Who sets, the, who sets these rules? It's all about the objects. It, it is, and it's, it's all business logic. Right. Right, ultimately... The same business people that set your validation rules and your algorithms and you know how, how everything works, they're the ones that tell you who can and can't edit stuff. The field should be disabled in a Windows app, just like a web app, just like a whatever, web service, doesn't matter. Exactly. And, and so to get that consistency and to centralize your business logic in the objects where it should be, um, it seemed reasonable that the objects should help you do this job. And so I added into the framework, this ability to property by property, um, tell which roles can or cannot read or write to, uh, each property. That's fabulous. And then on the windows side, um, I wrote an extender control that for detail edit forms, uh, actually interacts invisibly to you, uh, with the object and turns on and off all of your different controls. Excellent. Uh, and That's the, great. And the website, yeah, a little little so, different, but so still pretty nice. So it's an extender nice. provider in Windows Forms. It just you drag it onto the form and it does this, or yeah, exactly. Yeah, yep. And, and you know, for a grid level, it doesn't handle. But there's so many good ways to handle grids 
anyway. Mm. Um, but it's really, if you've got a detail form with like 50 text boxes, right. um, this avoids you having to write one line per text box to, Which, you know what? Uh, I think the, don't you think the majority of windows applications use the text box motif over the grid? I mean, you, you know, grids are great for digging into things and, and looking at things in aggregate, but in reality as a, as a data entry means it's, they're not, are they used as much as, no, they're yeah. not. I know so many people that um, I'll, I'll even talk about, you know, Microsoft in .NET 2 has the new grid. Right. Which is much better than the old grid. Very much. But. Still not oh, as good as the third-party tools out this there. This is though. true. Yeah. And so many, even with the third-party though, so many people tell me, well, I use grids to let the user navigate, but then right. I, I always bring up a dialog box to let them edit. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. You have more control. Let's, you know, unless you want to. Start hooking the grid and yeah, doing all sorts right. of UI code, which who wants to do that? Well, and code inside the grid is all relative to the row and things. So it's very tough. Just the concept of what's a name field gets very tricky once you're in a grid. Yeah. I got to tell you, in, in Popcatcher, which we talked about last week, this is a program that I wrote in .NET 2.0 to download podcasts and uh, uses Click once to publish. And it uses a grid. Uh, in the grid, I use data binding um, uh, exclusively to report on what is being shown. And with data binding, of course, there's like zero code. Mm-hmm. What's nice about this, one of, the, one of the tricks that I learned, I wanted to do a, uh, a progress bar, you know, a progress bar that shows you the progress of the download in each row. And of course, there, there isn't any progress bar column type, so that it wouldn't work. So what I basically did was I had some code in the middle tier that returned an image as a field of the object. And it just generates an image and I bind that to a picture box. Boom. It works great. And you've seen it, Richard. You, of course I have. Would you have any idea that that wasn't a progress bar control? I mean, no, no, no way to tell. It works just the way it's supposed to. And, and a progress bar is going to be drawing an image and displaying it anyway. So what's the diff, right? It was great. Easy. That, that, that is a clever workaround. <laughs> <laughs> I am nothing if not I won't say that. <laughs> All right. Moving right along to your third uh new feature, the portal, the data portal, the mobile object. So what problem does this solve? Well the original uh concept behind CSLA from day one was to enable the idea that uh uh your business logic really needs to run on the user interface. Yeah, like in a especially in a Windows environment, you want it running right there on the client, right? So you get this instant interaction and validation with the user, and and yet at the same time, we all know that if you're in a multi-tier scenario, you have to have code on the application server as well, right? And way back in the mid '90s, there was a tool called Forte that actually could move objects physically from computer to computer which at the time was extraordinarily cutting edge. Now, what objects would it move? Uh, I mean, what Forte was a language, right? Forte was a, it was a C++ derivative. Okay, C++. And uh, it, you could construct, for instance, business objects, like, say, customer, and it could physically move from your application server to your client workstation and then back again. Hmm. Wow. And it, it allowed you to create real nice, elegant, object-oriented models um, and still have them work well, scale well in a distributed environment. That's pretty slick. And then Java came along and basically does the same thing with RMI. Mm-hmm. Right. And then .NET comes along and remoting. does the same thing with remoting. Yeah. And so in CSLA.NET 1, um, I took advantage of remoting and and that capability and I was calling it distributed objects, but yeah, the term distributed objects is used for so many things, it's almost meaningless. And yeah. as everybody knows, remoting has sort of fallen out of uh, graces because of all the problems it has. Exactly. And the number one problem for me is events. Events are just non-existent in remoting, and that, that, you know, that's, that's a deal breaker for me. Well, and I'm not going to help you with events, because I, I don't think that uh, application servers should be raising events in a in a synchronous call. So I, uh, <laughs> sorry, I, I, I just I'm and not, not in a synchronous <laughs> call. Correct. Yeah, um, I don't either. But 
the idea basically as I looked at, at what I had done with the data portal, which in one version 1.0, which I thought was workable and, and, you know, a lot of people use it. Yeah. Um, but looking forward into the future, um, you find out in, in talking to different people that, uh, enterprise services for client server, um, is still a lot faster than either remoting or web services. Yeah. And so maybe I should support that. Hmm. And uh, we've got at least a couple customers who have corporate policies mandating that only web services are allowed. Right. Period. Yeah. Even if they're a bad technology uh, mm. for the particular application, that they're the only network technology supported. And then on top of that, Microsoft, of course, is working on uh, Windows Communication Foundation. Right. Right. And, and so I'm thinking, well, how do I eventually support Indigo when it comes out? And so I re- rewrote the data portal basically from the ground up so that it um, acts as a channel adapter so mm. that it, 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 you can plug in uh, a proxy stub technology using, okay. using any protocol that you care to. Interesting. And so I've got a, a local proxy that runs the data portal on the client workstation. So it's very fast, mm-hmm. two-tier. Um, a remoting proxy which works uh just the way that csla1 did and then an enterprise services uh approach uh, and of course the, that sets the, you up for indigo the dirty little secret with yeah. enterprise services is that it uses dcom on the wire ah so ah. not not overly firewall friendly now wait a second <laughs> really, really fast. wait a second uh, the the indigo team tells us that we should be using enterprise services now, if we want to move ahead, to position ourselves to move ahead to Indigo, to, I'm sorry, excuse me, Windows Communications Foundation. Yeah, well, and then there's a good reason for that. And it's because the uh, Indigo programming model is all attribute-based, or you know, it's declarative. Right, right. And right. so is enterprise services. But does that make converting your code that much easier? I guess, is it, does it mean that you should be using DCOM now? Is it that, you know? No, I no. don't. Well... <laughs> I don't think so, um, but I'm not Microsoft. You'd, you'd have a tough time making that sale. No, you should be using DCOM. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the thing is this, that if if you look at some of the demos and presentations that have been done over the past number of months, yeah, um, they include often uh, before and after pictures, right? What, what does your code look like uh, using web services? And what does it look like if you switch to Indigo? And usually it's only a couple lines changed. Okay. Right. And what if you were using remoting and you switch? Again, maybe a couple lines of code changed. And the same with using enterprise services. Yeah, okay. So for most of us that are just using these technologies essentially to do remote procedure calls, we're, we're not, none of us are going to be impacted except for the people using WYSI. Yeah. Right. They're, they're, um, Indigo simplifies the WYSI stuff right. so much. Yeah that you're going to end up ripping out a lot of, of WYSI code, basically. Yeah, but I don't see that as an awful thing either. No, I mean, we knew that this was early technology stuff in WYSI. I mean, yes, they, that's right. People have been fully warned. Right? And, and I never have a problem with getting rid of code. Yeah. Well, well it, then, yeah, it depends how much you're getting rid of, right? <laughs> but uh, Okay, Richard, your job is to remove 10 million lines of code interspersed between 50 million lines of code <laughs> go for it man yeah that's that's easier than removing 10 million lines of code interspersed with 10 lines of code that you better keep <laughs> that's, that's what's evil that's true but to, to bring it back to the yes uh, so the, the whole the idea here is that mm-hmm. you've got you've basically now completely abstracted away the communication layer so that you can just plug and play whatever communications uh transport you like exactly and of of course with indigo that in itself is an abstraction layer of different transports so you want to probably encourage people to move over to that as soon as they can don't you think i think they should move when they're ready and and in fact part of the reason that i did what i did with the data portal um is that it is and i've i've got a prototype uh indigo channel on my website already cool and what I, the reason I did this is because it, it is literally transparent, no change to code to switch between using remoting web services, enterprise services, or Indigo. Okay. Wow. Wow. And, 
I, I to me this is important. It's very important. Um, yeah, sure, you're right. Indigo uh, or WCF is this great abstraction layer, and and so my my channel lets you configure it in many different ways, but nonetheless, to your business code, to your objects, to your UI, to your data access code, that stuff shouldn't should not be contaminated with <laughs> right. in any of this network code. Right. <laughs> well, Rocky, so I'm sure people want to know, do you teach classes or does anybody teach classes in CSLA.net? I mean, the book is there. People can read the book. But is there any other resources training-wise that you have to offer? Um, well, <laughs> you're waggling your eyes. <laughs> as a matter of fact, as a, as a matter of fact, that wasn't a I'm setup. I'm so glad right you thing. asked, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I work for a consulting company, Magenic, and uh, although we don't do training as such, we certainly do mentoring. Sure, and uh, we'll do on-site consulting to help get people get started or even run through entire projects. So you can hire Rocky or one of his goons to come and help you, right? <laughs> one of my goons. One of his right. goons. I'm sure yeah. all his goons are very impressed with you right now, Carl. Well, yeah, they listen to this show, too. Rocky and his goons. <laughs> but, you know, I like the fact that you're not just a framework builder. You work for a company that builds software, right. and they use the framework. Yeah. Yep, that is absolutely true. Yeah, and there's also, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not a million users of this thing. Uh, do you have any numbers of how many people are using it? That's a great question. It's got to be a lot. Uh, it it does, but you know, I have no way of knowing for sure. I've got over 3,000 members on the forum. Let's talk book sales then. And uh, book sales uh, in total between the VB and the C Sharp uh, for the .NET version alone um, is up close to 30,000. That's fabulous. That's great for pretty exciting for a tech stuff. Book, that's amazing. Yeah, it's and you know the, to go back to the VB6, that one sold uh, up close to sixty thousand. Wow! But that was over. I mean, VB6 has that's been true. around for many, many years. I think you're Long the only time. guy who had a book on VB6 business objects at the time. That, that, perhaps that's probably true. Well, and as another means of education, you are going to be doing some DNR TV episodes with us going mm -hmm. through CSLA.net 2.0. And in fact, since this will be the first DNR TV on CSLA.net at all, we're going to be fairly complete in uh, in how this works. And, and you've signed up to do several shows, as many as it takes, perhaps, uh, to, to educate the world about uh, CSLA.net and your book. We'll be having fun. Fabulous. Just like to... Remind the listeners right now that uh, .NET Rocks is brought to you by sponsors without whom this show would not be possible. If our sponsors decided not to advertise, we wouldn't have a show. So uh, uh, one of those sponsors is Data Dynamics, and they make a product called ActiveReports.net. If you've been listening to the show for a number of years, you probably know about it. But if you haven't seen it in a while, go check it out at datadynamics.com. Uh, it's a great reporting tool. We love it. We use it. And uh, a lot of the regional directors also swear by it. So, datadynamics.com and tell them thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. Rocky, you mentioned that uh, the validation the new validation, the way that you do it is, is uh, going to break some code. What, is, what, what are we looking at here if you're currently upgrading from, you know, 1.x? Well, it depends. Uh, if you started with the 1.0 code from the original books, um, there, the, this new validation concept, for instance, doesn't exist at all. Right. And the only option you had was the assert method. Okay. And... So you're going to have to go through every object and change the way that your validation logic is written. And that might be a lot of work. I, sure. I, you know, uh, this was my opportunity in a sense. I, you know, Microsoft went from .NET version 1 to .NET version 2. Yeah. And uh, so I went from a 1 to a 2 as well. And, and it was my one chance in, in, a, you know, in this time frame mm. uh, to make any big changes. And so I did. Um, but... If you're yeah, using, you, you don't want to break it trivially. You really want to break it bad yeah. because you want to provide something good. <laughs> well, right? that, that was really the goal. Yes. Yeah. 
It's going to um, break, make it worth it. Yeah, and, and through the version one actually went through five major changes. So the the most recent version is one point five two, um, and I really worked hard to preserve backward compatibility throughout all of that time. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, including leaving in things that I wasn't too keen on. Sure, um, but were necessary. And then I left a few things in two point also just to keep as much backward compatibility as I could. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to take advantage, for instance, of generics. And so all of the base classes switched from being normal base classes to being generic base classes, which has some tremendous benefits. Binding list of T. Binding list of T, baby. That's, that's <laughs> very nice. Um, simplify your code in, in many ways. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, those are minor the, the, you know, those are all breaking changes, but I think they're relatively minor. Yeah. Um, the real changes are where, where you have to go into your business objects and change your code. And and the only major area of breaking change there uh, is the validation. Okay. Um, and starting in version 1.3, uh, you could have been doing validation this new way too. I actually, this isn't totally new. It was... You, prototyped you could say yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> well you let's you know you solved a problem there with with uh binding that uh was a real problem i mean a lot of us weren't even aware of the problem we just thought it was like a glitch in our code mm-hmm. you know i thought it was just something i was doing wrong that when the the you know list box doesn't update and when the object updates what what's going on and you figured out that you that it's the uh the was the delegate list what wasn't serializing is oh, that what yep. it is? If you, yeah, there's a whole set of uh, event hookups that occur in the background that don't carry forward uh, if you serialize and deserialize your objects. And right. so, um, and, and that, that's taken some time to trace down. Uh, I bet. It, you know, even CSLA 1.0 had some of it wrong. And it isn't until uh, the later versions of, of 1.x yeah. that, that I got all of that solved. Yeah. Um, but of course, that carries forward into the 2.0 framework. So, um, yeah, so all of the, the event hookups, you know, including things where you change a, some child object deep in your object graph, all of that bubbles up, um, and, and should reflect in your data binding. So if you have one point, what's the latest one point? 1.5? Uh, 1.52. If yep. you have 1.52, what are you looking at in terms of validation code breaking? Well, if you're using one five two and you're using the validation or the the uh, validation rules engine the concept, assert. yeah, uh, well, not using assert, okay, um, but but using check rules is okay. actually the method. Um, then your your code changes are are I think really quite minor. Um, I changed a couple class names basically, okay, um, and and so. Uh, a quick refactor might do uh, it, you're thinking? Quick, a little bit of renaming. Renaming? And, and, uh, well, yeah, but refactoring is the, the cool name for renaming. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> in this case, yeah. <laughs> but if you're still using asserts, you're in trouble. Yeah. But if you're using asserts... You, you know, got some work ahead of you. Yeah, I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat that. Sure. It, it's, no. It's, but I, I think, I guess, the goal here was to get asserts out of the equation. It was not the right way to go. Yeah, that's, that's, it turned out in retrospect that a lot of people had to come up with interesting ways to uh, architect their objects in order to work around the way a cert worked. And right. that's too bad. So, Rocky, now I know that you have your hands in a lot of things. You do development. You do, you know, you're writing code all day. You're doing this book. You're doing the framework. If you had to pick one thing that really puzzled you recently and uh, some way that you worked around it that's suitable for... Our listeners. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, there's some things that uh, you just can't talk about. But well, the, the probably the one that I can actually point to an answer for, anyway, that that, that puzzled me at some length uh, is, is a uh, we'll, we'll call it a feature of .NET 2.0's data binding in Windows okay. Forms. Um, I'll see if I can describe this in a way that makes sense. So, if you've got a detail form in Windows Forms, mm-hmm. and you bind uh, all of your properties to those different text boxes, and the user is typing things into a text box and tabs off, mm-hmm. of course, that value gets put into your uh, object, but your object then might change the value 
Maybe there's some sort of a manipulation that says all letters must be uppercase. Okay. Um, and it's a business rule, so it goes in your object. If you do that, it won't show up in the UI. In other words, the user can type ABC, type in lowercase, tab off. The lowercase ABC will stay in the text box. Then later, when they change some other field, and now keep in mind, the object uppercase the value, right? So the object has an uppercase ABC. The UI is incorrectly showing a lowercase. The user then changes some other control and tabs off that control. All of a sudden, the ABC in uppercase shows up in the text box that they weren't on. Now, I've seen this with .NET 1.0 and 1.1. When you're using a list box and a text box in conjunction with themselves, when you have the details in the text box and a list box that shows like the all the fields in the all the records, yep. and uh, and you move off the text box because it doesn't commit the change when you when you tab off the text box. Only when you move the field, only when you move the row pointer, basically the record pointer in the list box, does it commit. And so you have to. Is this the that may similar be true, thing? It may be true with data sets. I'm not sure that's true with objects. This may be it, yeah. In in one point, oh, one point one. one, yeah. yeah. Um, this is actually a different problem. Okay, uh, it's a similar symptom. It, it's a similar symptom, um, but the uh, I suppose we're like doctors here, right? Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, sim- same <laughs> symptom, but d- different. It's a very different <laughs> disease. Yeah. <laughs> so in in this case, um, using because we're using the new uh, I notify property changed interface. Which is a correct a, a nice step forward. Very nice. And what what we're seeing here is the symptom of an optimization in Windows Forms, where they assume that because they just put the value into your data source, that the data source and the UI must be in sync. So there's no need to refresh the current control. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, yeah, I don't ask me. I got this straight from the team that wrote really? this stuff. Wow. And well, then, it's the idea that it's all coming from the UI in the first place. So why do we need to update it? They, they describe this as an optimization. I would describe it as a bug. I would think <laughs> it's a bug. Yeah. <laughs> so what happens is when you change a field and put in, put the value into your uh, data source, the data source raises uh, property changed event, mm. triggering Windows Forms to refresh all controls except the one that the user was just editing. Oh, man. <sighs> and you know they wrote code to do that. Oh, yeah. They put out effort to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, this wasn't an omission. It was a is a, a, a flagrant act. It, it was... It, it <laughs> they was, meant it. <laughs> so. They meant to do that. <laughs> So to give credit where credit is due, however, the reason that I was able to figure out why this occurs and the workaround was purely because the the product team helped me. Good. So I mean, kudos to them for. Oh, they're you awesome. Know, that, it, it, you know, know, let's face it, they have the best intention. They That's really true. do. Right. Absolutely. It's just they don't do this stuff for a living. Well, you know, it it these stories are rare. Let's face it. I mean, yeah. most of the stories we tell on this show are about how they, they kicked ass of uh, this problem or that problem, you know. But it, it's interesting to sit down with a guy like you and, and you ask, you know, what what is, you know, had you scratching your head? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, then definitely it's going to bubble down to the rest of us mere mortals. It's not just me. To be fair, everybody runs into these. Go look at sure. that, that ladybug and, and all of the little bugs that people find because they're out there, you know, like Richard said, doing, we're all out here doing real stuff. Right. And for all the, the, the Microsoft employs all of these testers to test all of this, you know, they're writing tests. Yeah. And, and they're not writing real business applications and they're not trying to do some of the um, innovative or, or weird things that, that we all try to do. Right. Rocky, um, let me pick up on a conversation we've been having over the course of the last two .NET Rock shows. It started out with, uh, you know, you saying that you were never a big fan of data sets. And uh, then, you know, obviously because it allow, they allow people to go in there and poke around and do things without validation and some other high-level things that they do. Then .NET 2.0 Alpha Beta came out and you were beginning to say, hey, you know, this uh, the ability to separate with type data sets, you know, to separate uh, logic from, from designer code is pretty good. I'm, I'm interested in this. And then you got back to... 
well, okay, now it's not such a good idea because I have to use events if some methods are being overridden in the uh, designer code that I can't then override in my logic. So now .NET 2.0 has come out, you know, it's finally out. You know, they've 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 got it. What what is your current assessment of the data set scenario? Well, they took a pretty big step forward with the data set by enabling partial classes. So a strongly right. strongly typed data table, you can have a partial class and that allows you to handle things like a column changing or column changed event. Mm-hmm. And in that event handler, you can put a uh, select or switch statement um, on the uh, property name or column name. Mm-hmm. And then in each block, you can write your validation and so forth. Yeah. Now, now I'm describing it this way on purpose because it's obviously not the most elegant coding solution that you can envision. Uh, but nonetheless, it is totally doable. Mm-hmm. And at this point, uh, there's a couple workarounds. I've, I've spent some time yeah, I know. exploring this. And there are some, uh, you know, I think they got 90% of the way, okay. I guess is the way to put it. And you have to carry it the other 10, which means doing some extra work, uh, implementing a custom interface um, on each data table in order to overcome some of the, the way that the grid interacts with the data table. So well, let's, some, let's, some of the things you're talking about. Let's talk about that then. So... Um, stretching my memory because I've, I've been writing a business <laughs> objects book here. Right? Um, but uh, if you bind your grid to one of these uh, data sets or data tables that's got code behind it, mm. uh, what will happen is as the user types things into each uh, in-place editing, you know, into each cell mm-hmm. and, and moves along, those values get put into the data table. Yeah. Immediately, which is nice. Mm-hmm. And your validation code can run. You can set an error string if you don't like it. And it shows up as the little red, yeah. you know, in the grid. Row it, error, it, column it, error. Oh, nice. It's, it's, it's all very nice. Very nice. But then hit escape. Don't commit the row. And what happens is that, again, this is an optimization thing. The grid will reset all of the values back to the, what they were, because right? you hit escape means cancel. Right. Don't do the edit. Right. But your data table never knows. Hmm. The events don't make it down to the data table, so your code that, that runs all your validation doesn't run again. And so all of those cells that have the cool little error icons, keep them. Yeah. Because nothing tells the error icon to go away. I have, uh. I have solved this problem um, by... Before I do any, well, when I'm adding, right, when I'm adding, when I'm updating, when I do an edit, I remove all of the errors because I figure errors are a one-way reporting mechanism, those error strings from the business object to the UI. And I remove them all. My code is going to validate and run and reset them if they needed to be reset. So I start out my, my validation routines with a, with a little loop that clears all the errors. The problem is that you might not be on that grid or on that row anymore. So even that answer is a little challenging because inside of your, I mean, remember that what we've done effectively I see is your validation code still has to run in order for those errors to clear. We've transformed the data table yeah. into a smart object. So yeah. you don't know what state it might be holding. So just clearing the errors at the UI level isn't good well, enough. Well, no, no. I mean, right? in, in the code, in the business logic validation. But, the, but now the business logic ideally is purely in your data table, which doesn't get told that the user hit right. escape. Right. And so this is, yeah, this that's is that problem. other 10%. Yeah. You basically have to, what I did anyway, is I created my own subclass of the grid control so that I was able to know. A good idea anyway. When the user hit escape. <laughs> and there's actually some other ways you can get off a row sure. and cancel. Um, escape is not the only way. Yeah. Um, and then I'm able to notify through a custom interface the data table mm. to say, yo, dude, you know, e- even though data binding didn't tell you, I'm telling you yeah. that, that the user canceled, um, revalidate the row. That's a good answer. And, I mean, it's a little extra work, but that's, that's the right answer. You know, but it's worth it. If, sure. if, you, if you really like data tables, and, and a lot of people do, right? They're, yeah, can't they're blame them. They're powerful. They're fast. They're fast. You know? and, and so with this bit of extra work, and, and I have yet to figure out a way to framework 
this code, right. which is always my goal. Right, um, right. But but nonetheless, it's a standard solution that that you can implement with uh, you know maybe twenty lines of code. Um, and then you just add a few lines into each data table, mm-hmm. you know, use a code snippet to insert them. Sure. Um, and, and away you go. And, and, and it's something that you said that we, we mentioned that I want to bring up back again, which is you create a subclass of the windows, you know, the grid, which is something you should probably do anyway. I mean, one of the best tips that I ever got was from Marcus Egger. Who, who makes it a, a requirement of his dev teams. Well, he made it a requirement that the very first thing they do when a new version of .NET comes out is subclass all the Windows Forms controls and use those subclasses. The reason being that you may not be needing to extend them now, but in the future when you do need to extend them, you don't break your code. And uh, they've he pointed me to a couple of stories where, and I've said this story on the show before, where you know, it comes down to shipping day and the customer says, oh no, we we need all of the text boxes to force all caps because we're mainframe guys, whatever. You know, a very simple change in the text box control and rebuild in the whole app is all caps. Things and like that happen a lot in the real world. It's a good argument. And my my only comment back to that is is why wouldn't you use a regular text box and then if you need a custom text box, you could just refactor. Well, that's true. That's true as well. I, that, that's tongue in cheek, right? I mean, yeah. Refactoring is is today's answer to any problem. Oh, so, I see. Right. I see. You know, it's hard to tell when you're joking, Rocky. <laughs> it's like that time at Dev Connections where he started the show with, "I've seen the light. It's not about objects. It's about services. <laughs> services. For Ob- everything. I'm done with objects." And I was actually hooking, hooked in to I, it for I a totally few minutes. I totally had you. That was you great. Totally. Oh, you had us all. We were all hanging there looking at it going, is that really Rocky Lock over there? And, you know, even sitting across uh, the table from him, I, I had no idea, you know, because he's totally serious. <laughs> it's that Minnesotan deadpan. Everybody just thinks I'm serious. It's, it's not <laughs> really true. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So, Rocky, I was poking through your blog a while ago, and you mentioned spoil. Yes. Which, of course, being a data guy, that's something I'm always going to jump on. And, it, and I know you talked about Link as well, and I'm fascinated at your position. You know, you've always stayed away from the ORMs of this world, mm-hmm. so I'm fascinated at your position on these technologies. Well, it is a space that has been uh, problematic for everyone who's gone into it, and uh, I, I think that this is why I've steered clear of it is because it's it's a very it's a it's a place that you can get sucked into and never find it's, your way yeah. back out. Right? Ted yeah. Neward's line, the <laughs> Vietnam of software development. <laughs> <laughs> and and yet you know at the same time it's it's a seductive place to very, think about yeah. because everybody has this problem. Yes. And if you got it right you'd save the world. And yes, exactly. Mm. So you know, if if I knew the answer, baby, I'd, I'd be there. But um, <laughs> the answer to me is far from clear. And you look at, at spoil, um, for instance, or what, what is my, spoil? Let's talk about that just quickly. Um, stored procedure object interface layer. Okay. Yeah, this is about basically you know an an ORM layer over stored right. procedures. Okay. Yeah, that's it, enough. You know, there, there we go. <laughs> okay, can can edit that so we sound smart. Is no, that no, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> we turn up the brightness meter. <laughs> so, you, you, spoil gives you this ability to more easily call uh, stored procedures, and and you know, link turns around and and if you think about it, it's kind of doing something not all that different, mm. very similar, and. Something that's common across both of those technologies uh, and most other ORM technologies is that the focus or the assumption is uh, that your objects are shaped like your data. Yeah. Right. And that the primary behavior of an object is to contain data. Right. And while certainly there are objects whose primary purpose in life is to contain data, that's not the purpose of all objects Certainly in a not. system uh, other objects have behaviors such as calculating values or validating data or mm-hmm. um you know there's key object oriented or just representing real world things that need to be manipulated and interact with each other yeah, yeah. And, and, it, and it's those interactions right those are all behaviors that 
have maybe something to do with the data, but that's not the focus. Right. The, the focus is not the data. And yet ORM tools, Link, and Spoil, all these things, the focus is the data. Yes. Right? They, they're, 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 these things exist to make the data people happy, not to make the object people happy. And it's awfully easy, to, I think, to confuse the two, um, especially because most programmers come into this with some indoctrination indoctrination uh about data right and thinking relationally and normalizing data and tend to think well i should normalize my data in my objects too well okay and that's that's wrong could it could it not be applicable only to those objects that are you know concerned with data and data containers i mean there is value to that nobody's saying you have to use a link for every type of object that you create right it's not an all or nothing proposition oh Carl, you know it is because you get in, everybody wants standards, right? So it's not yeah. like you're going to use two or three types of data access technology in an no, no, application. No I, no, I mean certain objects in your application you may uh, iterate across with, you know, link queries and, and other objects you won't. I mean, nobody's saying that you have to use link on every object in your system. No, that's true. That's what I, that, that's but, what I was trying to say. But, but ultimately, you've got to get the object out of the database. And, and or get the data out of the database and hopefully into an object or, or for those data type of objects. And yeah, but, but the problem is even objects that are, are more behavioral, um, you know, things that like post an invoice still need a bunch of invoice data, mm. e- even though the primary focus is all of the heavy duty algorithms around mm. pricing and, you know, taxing and all the other invoice posting things, uh-huh. you still need a whole bunch of data. And so it's awfully tempting to think, oh, I'll just create my invoice poster using link, right? I'll go to the, I'll use link to get the database and instantiate uh, this invoice. Well, at that point you're in trouble because you, you've stepped outside of what these tools can do for you. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. All of them assume that your objects only have public read, write properties. Yeah. Well, what happened to data hiding? That's mm. a key object-oriented concept and, mm. and key for maintainability of your system. Mm. And yet we're, we're basically saying um, oh, we, we don't need data hiding ever, yeah. right? We could just as well have skipped properties and used public fields at this point yeah. because that, right. that's what we're saying. And mm. you know, people don't stop to think about don't, – don't put it in those terms because it's, it's controversial, but, but I think we should. <laughs> so you're saying that there are some objects where – it's there's an obvious benefit, but there's a lot more that you you perhaps will entice developers to use these RM tools where they really shouldn't be using them. If I could sum up what you just said, would that be accurate? Mm, yeah, I, I actually like to think of it more in in the sense that I would hope that we can pressure vendors like say Microsoft, who owns, for example, for example. Who, who own the CLR and thus could make it possible for themselves to load private fields without using reflection, mm, for instance. Mm, mm. Right. Because right. you know, mm. the answer, like you, you look at something like Spoil or even potentially Link, they could load the fields in an object, including private ones. Yes. Right. And thus preserve data hiding and all the other cool object-oriented ideas that we, we all should love. Um and, and yet still be very, very fast. Mm. Whereas today for you or I to sit down and, and we could, and people do, uh, create these data mappers using reflection. Yeah. Right. Get the data from the table, load the fields using reflection. Well, you take what, yeah. maybe a 15% performance hit. hit. Right. Um, but that's because we can't change the CLR to make it work the way that maybe it should. Good point. Uh, Rocky, I think it's about time for us to ask the question. Don't you think, Richard? I'm thinking it is. All right. You know what the question is, right? What's the, he's looking at me like, what, what? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, uh, we begun, uh, a little while ago asking our guests at the end of the show, what's the coolest thing you've downloaded lately? But that has sort of morphed into, you know, what have you seen on the web, uh, that caught your eye, a tool, a piece of software, a website, um, and I know he's not going to say latka.net. He's just not that kind of guy. Who would, he's not. Besides, his website needs to be Daxified if I ever saw a website that needs to be Daxified. <laughs> you, you know, I've actually gotten emails from people that have read my book that have gone to my website, have sent me emails saying, you know, dude, this website, 
sucks. <laughs> Fix your website. It's utilitarian. Let's leave it at that. Well, yes, it's 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 it's, it's what it is. We got a sick yeah, Dax. Decorative on it. would not be a word I'd use. So, seen anything cool out there in the vast world of the internet? Well, as you might know, I'm a I'm a gamer. Yeah. Yay. And yep. And and so the the cool things that I've been doing, and these aren't really downloadable exactly. Okay, well. Um, I, I'm, I'm hooked on civilization four at the moment. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that is, uh, that's all, what little free time I have has all been sucked away. Wow. Um, I, I had to know. avoid it, man. It's like three months of my life gone. If I even touch that game. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't afford to even think about games like that. It's, uh, well, and, and it, it's a luxury that I allow myself usually at the end of every big project. So I'm at the end right. of the books, yeah. right? Right. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I, I go out and I buy whatever game I've been, you know, drooling over for months, and and this is it. So you know, they should have sports tournaments with these games because you know it should be at the Olympics because golf is one of those games that if you don't play all the time, you're going to suck at it, right? And these games are the same way; they suck you in, you you get addicted to them, and the people who really spend the time and do them well, they they ought to be pros. The, the, for, <laughs> you know, pro civ player. I, I would watch them on TV. I would. I would like to see in the uh, 2010 Olympics. Uh, I would like to see, you know, civilization tournaments. Come on. You know, for first person shooters, your dream has already come true because yes. there are professional tournaments for things yeah. like Doom and. We'll see. And that's Half-Life how much and- I know. <laughs> but you see, those aren't any fun to watch because those guys are so fast. It's just a blur, and then somebody blows up, yes. and then another blur, and then somebody blows up. That is so think, true. It's like watching I think just watching Data the analysis of somebody doing a war in civilization between two players, which goes on for a substantial amount of time. All right, maybe if they have one guy playing both sides at the same time, that that <laughs> I would like to see. You know, one uh, the hand schizophrenia network would pick player it up. A left hand, player B right hand. Come on, let's go. Rocky, what can I say? It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. You, you know, our fans love you. Everybody loves you. you got great books, good stuff, CSLA.net. And I'm looking forward to your DNR TV episodes, which are coming up here very soon. At least we'll get started and hope to have you back many, many times in the future. Thanks. Well, thank you guys a bunch. Bye. And we'll see you in Orlando. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Toy Boy!